that's the news from RTHK. Good morning. Welcome to Back Chat. I'm Danny Kittings. Your guest presenter this morning is Rainbow Learn. Good morning, Rainbow. Good morning, Danny. In our main topic today, we're talking about the legacy of former President Lee Ka-chung, who died of a heart attack last Friday at the age of 68. According to state media, his remains will be cremated today and flags across China will fly at half-mast in mourning for an outstanding leader. Mr. Lee, who is a former economist, served as the premier for a decade before retiring in March. Throughout his 10 years in office, the Anhui native became especially popular among the country's working class, while his structural reforms and debt reduction policies were praised by the business community. So what will um, Mr. Lee be remembered for, best remembered for? What were some of his key policies? Uh, later in the program, we're going to be talking about the use of artificial intelligence in the media. Could you one day have a AI hosting back chat? We'll find out later. Let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio Free. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call. The number there, 233 Joining us uh, to discuss um, the f- former Premier Li Keqiang uh, is uh, Ben Cavender. Ben Cavender is the Managing Director at China Market Research Group. We also hope to be joined shortly uh, by uh, Professor J- um, Joseph Mahoney from East uh, China Normal University in Shanghai. Uh, ben Cavender, good morning. Welcome to Back Chat. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Now, looking back, I mean, Li Keqiang is, is famous for so many things he said. I mean, of course, people remember he said that uh, uh, only last year the Yellow River and the Yangtze River never flow backwards. And um, much further back, he sort of made fun of economic statistics and said, oh, look at them. Better to look at electricity consumption instead. I mean, what, 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 when you, you, you think back over his legacy, what, what really stands out to you? Well, I think he's very interesting as a leader in China because he's much less uh, a technocrat than a lot of other Chinese leadership and instead really was very much an academic who who had a lot of grounding in economic theory, who also at the same time was was very much a champion of the everyman. So when you look at his policy, I think what, what he should be known for is really trying very hard to support private business and small business in China and also trying quite hard to, to push through reform that was going to benefit sort of the average working class, um, you know, both very laudable things. And at the other end of the spectrum, um, what were his biggest failures during his term? Well, I mean, I think the, the big criticism or failure for, for Lee has always been that uh, he, he kind of came to power at the same time as, as Xi Jinping and, and at a time when the government was going through very serious structural reform. I think um, in some ways this maybe limited his ability to follow through on a lot of his objectives or a lot of the policies that he really maybe wanted to champion. So I think in some ways he's seen as being somebody with great ideas, but maybe um, not the kind of follow through needed to actually make them stick over the long run. So he'd be popular not so much for what he did, but um, for his the way he behaved and some people say he's popular not for what he did but what he he, what he didn't do is that a fair comparison i i think that's fair i mean i think when you look at look at how he behaved i think he's somebody who really did call things as he saw them um even if maybe it wasn't the most politically expedient thing to do um i think he he had a very clear understanding of of how he saw china's economy and china's future and the challenges that china faced and he wasn't afraid to write articles to make speeches that that maybe were not always completely in line with 
perhaps what he might have been expected to say by the party leadership. And I, I think that um, that probably took a lot of courage. Um, but at the same time, he, he probably handicapped himself in terms of being able to actually make some of these reforms happen because he, he used up enough political capital that he sort of was maybe pushed to the side a little bit in terms of what a premier traditionally has been able to do in China. Um, so I think that's probably the failing. And we're also joined by uh, Professor Joseph uh, Gregory Mahoney, who's uh, Professor of Politics and International Relations at East China Normal University in Shanghai. Uh, Professor Mahoney, welcome back to Back Chat. Um, what, what's your assessment of Li Keqiang's legacy? Well, I, I agree that uh, he's being assessed now, as, as uh, was, was noted by, by many who, who uh, appreciated his sincerity and his candor, uh, and this is uh, this this image of the everyman, and I think this is uh, something that's being extolled as one of his virtues, but it's also uh, tacitly a criticism uh, of other leaders. Uh, the, you know, people saying, well, they sort of wish that this was was more prevalent in, in senior leadership positions. Um, and I, I am in, inclined to agree that uh, you know he he was a champion of small and medium uh, sized businesses, and. Um, um, uh, and, you know, that, that perhaps policymaking there didn't um, uh, achieve what, what some had hoped. Um, but I'm, I'm a little cautious of terms that are being used like economics. Um, and uh, I, I don't think that we, we can say necessarily that, it, that the rest of the government was opposed to small and medium-sized uh, enterprises or that policies on their behalf failed, uh, rather that there were other headwinds and challenges um, that ended up uh, uh, compelling strategically uh, an over-reliance on larger firms, um, as well as, uh, you know, developments like uh, delivery services and um, um, uh, uh, other changes that, that were putting pressure on the market um, in addition to COVID that, that uh, uh, undermined uh, uh, the, the smaller firms. But I think that the point that, that a lot of people are missing, um, uh, but would be very well understood in the countryside, is that uh, Lee was, was uh, always, uh, because you know, he came from the, the Communist Youth League, which has its strongest or one of its strongest bases of support in the countryside, that he's always been highly regarded um, in rural areas. And I think that we haven't talked enough about um, uh, his likely impact on uh, policies that supported uh, rural revitalization um, uh, and other efforts to uh, improve conditions uh, for farmers. Um, and we know that, um, that this has been discussed in, in uh, some corners. Uh, uh, for example, his efforts to improve uh, conditions associated with migrant workers, um, uh, uh, to uh, address uh, issues like those facing left-behind children uh, and others. So in these respects, I think that uh, his, his humanist vision and, and certainly his policymaking um, uh, was a success, and perhaps some of the other things that, uh, that fell short had less to do with, with um, uh, uh, policymaking antagonisms or competition, uh, but, but more uh, uh, broader pressures uh, in the market. And um, uh, Professor Mahoney, um, what you, the examples you mentioned are, are those his uh, what's termed as Lee economics, uh, his economic policies termed Lee economics. Sorry, apologies. Um, are, are in your view are they still relevant today, or or because it's been reported that they've really fizzled out? Well, you know, I think that there were there were two or three things that that uh, <laughs> that, were, that were happening. The first is. 
you know, I think that uh, that uh, Lee belongs to what we would call the the Tuan Pai faction uh, or the the uh, Communist Youth League, and he was associated with the former leader Hu Jintao and, and Wen Jiabao. Um, and uh, part of this factionalism that had grown up, uh, uh, there were several factions, but the two key factions were Tuan Pai, uh, which, which was uh, Hu, Jintao, Hu Jintao's group, and then the, the, the Shanghai faction associated with uh, Jiang Zemin. And a lot of the analysis says that these two factions had effectively gridlocked um, uh, government and had made it impossible to uh, advance major reforms, economic reforms, uh, and also um, uh, made it impossible to advance a thoroughgoing uh, party rectification campaign. And so there was this idea that um, that we needed to have this anti-corruption drive so that it would open the door to uh, reforms, uh, especially uh, directed towards state-owned enterprises and other albatrosses that had grown up without uh, effective uh, reforms or regulations over the past uh, 15 years before before that point. Uh, now, th- th- there are two things here. First, uh, those, those, that anti-corruption drive was, was of course, uh, incredibly successful. But the moment it starts uh, really consolidating its gains, and we expect to see um, uh, the, the economic reforms, we start seeing pressures from the U.S., uh, the trade war, and other issues that are going to then undermine and make it more difficult to make those reforms. Now, is, is that a strategic um, uh, thing on the part of the U.S., or is that something else, or is, or, or is the Chinese government always going to be sort of looking for opportunities to, um, <laughs> you know, avoid making uh, difficult reforms? That, that's yeah. a, a matter of uh, some debate. But I think the, the other key point here is that, you know, um, uh, Li Keqiang was, in effect, a holdover from uh, a faction and there was a lot of speculation that he wouldn't survive to a second term in office. Yeah, you um, raise a good point. He then, wasn't. Yes. He was, You know, with Wen yeah. Jiabao, he was he was the right hand man yeah. of of uh, of Hu Jintao, and to a large extent, Zhu yeah. Rongji was the right hand man of uh, Jiang Zemin. But um, this this relationship between Xi Jinping and and, um, and Li Keqiang was forced by um, uh, political circumstances yeah. in order to try to find a solution to the, this factionalism that had divided yeah, government. You, 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 the fact that the, I think that they were able to work through those differences, and recall, one of the things that we were, that we were speculating even before she took power was that it might that, that Lee Keqiang might emerge as, as the top guy. Uh, but the fact that they were able to work through those differences and continue to do so through a second term, I think, uh, suggests that the, that the political partnership was perhaps a lot more productive. Yeah. And, uh, uh, sorry, it's right. You, you, you um, Professor um, Mahoney, you raised some and, interesting um, points there. Capable uh, than, than many imagine it, and I, I don't think that there was as much friction. Yeah. Um, I, I do think that, that clearly a premier has a different um, uh, worldview, the way he is responsible for government. Um, he's not so much uh, directed towards broader strategic uh, considerations or long-term mm-hmm. vision, um, and so there's always going to be some natural tension between uh, number one and number two. Yeah. Uh, uh, sorry, I, I Professor Mahoney. Sorry, uh, we, we they just did uh, form uh, an effective uh, political partnership. <laughs> they just ran into a lot of challenges that uh, frustrated some of their their uh, ambitions. Yep. Uh, you made some very interesting points there. Um, our, our other guest, Ben Cavender, has to leave shortly. So uh, let, let's uh, let's follow up on some of those points uh, with uh, Ben Cavender, and particularly um, the interesting point Professor Mahoney was making that was, in a sense, Lee Ka-Chung... Uh, for- Hi, Ben Cavender. Uh, was Lee Ka-Chung quite lucky to survive as long as he did? 
Well, I think he was, he he was probably lucky to survive as long as he did. Um, but he's also somebody who I think, by and large, was quite well-liked. You know, leaving factions aside, he's he's always, to some degree, been a facilitator. And I think that that probably helped him stay in his position maybe quite a bit longer than, than one might have expected. Um, I do, though, think that probably to some degree the role of the premier also over time has been uh, reduced slightly, um, and, and that probably made it more palatable as well to, to keep him on side. And Ben, we know that he was very popular with the you know, Chinese general public, but, but what do you know if he was also very well liked internally within the party? Well, I, I think he, you know, he he was well liked. He had a he had a very fast political rise in China. I think he was the youngest governor ever in Henan Province when he took over that role. I think around the age of forty two or forty three. Um, so he was always definitely a shining star, and I think seen as somebody that you know others could work with. And I think that was um, very important. And I think it's important to his legacy because it means a lot of discussions happened regarding economic reform and, and the right ways to shift policy that otherwise, you know, might not have happened or might not uh, have gone as, as deep as they did. And I think I said before that, you know, maybe some of his policy never was maybe enacted the way that he liked, mm-hmm. but I think he did do quite a bit to help China move away from some of the heavy debt financing and other challenges that, that they kind of built up over um, Xi's predecessor. And how about this whole idea that the role of the Premier is evolving and maybe um, <laughs> the role of the Premier will just be less important going forward? Uh, you know, my, my perception is that that is not a good thing. I, I, I really do think that government, whatever form of government, does need checks and balances. And I think right now China is navigating a, a very tricky scenario with the economy, with geopolitics, with demographics. Um, and so there does need to be a strong hand pushing things forward, but, but there also need to be enough different viewpoints that, that China doesn't make any major missteps. Um, so my feeling is that it should still remain a really important position, and the, the hope is that they continue to look at getting enough outside voices to drive policy the right way. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, that was uh, Ben Cavender, the uh, Managing Director of China Market Research Group. We're going to continue the discussion on uh, Li Keqiang's legacy. If you have any thoughts, uh, uh, do email us at backchat on RTHK or HK, or you go to our Facebook page, backchat on RTHK Radio Free, and leave a comment there. Uh, one who did email us is uh, former SCMP journalist Tony, who is um, uh, who has now called in. Uh, Tony, uh, caller Tony, good morning. Welcome to Backchat. Hi, good morning. Uh, now, you covered, <coughs> you, you covered Li Keqiang's visit to that famous visit to Hong Kong. When was it? In 2011, 2012, when he went to Hong Kong, you and spoke in English. Isn't that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was back in um, August uh, 2011 when he went to, the, to uh, uh, Hong Kong, you. And you celebrate the centenary, yeah. Yeah, and you also covered his uh, work annual work reports uh, to the National People's Congress. What, 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 what are your, from covering uh, Li Keqiang over a number of years, what, what are your impressions of Li Keqiang, particularly in relation to Hong Kong? Well, I, um, I think Li Keqiang um, is very different from his predecessor, Mr. Wen Jiabao, because Wen Jiabao is, um, um, uh, his, uh, uh, Mr. Li Keqiang is uh, basically sort of the voice of the state council, so every year, a lot of um, journalists like me and other analysts, um, we look uh, look forward to what he's going to say in his uh, work report. Like uh, what what is so because what he said in the work report represents what the central government um, latest uh, policies and directions from Hong Kong. Right? So 
Um, I remember him as um, as, uh, as a very hardworking person, and um, I think he's also quite a, a popular official. And and he was in uh, uh, he was premier for a term of ten years. Um, hmm. During that period, do, you know, do you see um, what you know? So far as Hong Kong is concerned, did he have any sort of like impact um, in the way you know, you know, it, 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 with Hong Kong now? Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, so I think during his ten years um, as the premier, um, he is uh, really uh, he has really um, done a lot to drive Hong Kong um, interaction with mainland China. Um, I, uh, actually, uh, I was also there in uh, 2009 when he. Uh, officiated the uh, the, uh, the actually the start of the construction of the Hong Kong to Hong Kong Bridge, and actually uh, during his uh, premiership, um, Hong Kong also um, there are lots of political changes in Hong Kong. So I think one of the poli- uh, the work report um, that uh, stood out was the one that he made in 2017, because uh, you know usually when the premier make, uh, the 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 work we call when he talk about Hong Kong is usually mentioned about one country two system, Hong Kong people government Hong Kong. But in twenty seventeen he really um uh he mentioned uh, Hong Kong independence and he uh, said categorically that um independence is not the not the way for Hong Kong. And so it's really um kind of uh, it, it's really quite extraordinary that he um he mentioned this uh, political term in the work report. And also in the in the same same report he also mentioned um uh the first time the Greater Bay Area project, because um, before that the uh, GBA project was um, pretty much like a Guangdong provincial government um, project, but uh, for him to mention it in the World Report, it really um, elevated it to a really high level. At that time, I think uh, um, we really didn't know what was going to happen, but um, looking back from now, there was the uh, outline development plan in 2019, and then. Um, CBA is really um, like a big policy for Hong Kong now. So, um, yeah, so it um, kind of shows how um, uh, uh, legal chance significance on Hong Kong's um, recent development. Okay, thank you very very much for calling in. That was caller Tony, former SCMP journalist, who, as you've just been hearing, uh, covered uh, Li Keqiang extensively in the Hong Kong context during uh, his years in office. Uh, Still with us is uh, Professor Joseph Gregory Mahoney from East uh, China Normal University in Shanghai. Professor Mahoney, I know Hong Kong's not your um, uh, principal focus here, but I just wondered if you have any uh, thoughts uh, hearing our caller talking about how Li Keqiang had an impact in Hong Kong as well. Well, Professor Mahoney? Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's, that's a little outside my scope, as you note. But uh, I, as I recall, during the, the first uh, five-year term, the way the, the standing uh, uh, committee was composed, um, the person who held the, the portfolio um, was not for, for Hong Kong was, was a, a member of the, um, was a member of the uh, Shanghai faction, and that would have been Someone who was a little bit at odds with with um, with um, the the the, the Pai group that um, Li Keqiang was associated with, and there's been some speculation that that uh, difference uh, perhaps accelerated some of the, the problems that we later saw in in Hong Kong. Um, but you know, I think uh, by the time we get to um, uh, the second uh, five-year term, I think uh, uh, Lee is playing a much more uh, 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 Calming role and, and certainly his his presence is is more reassured in so much as during the first five years 
Um, it, you know, many people believe that uh, Wang Qishan, who was running the anti-corruption campaign, was the true number two. And if you go back to some of those uh, years, um, when when Wang Qishan would give a speech uh, at the NPC, uh, there, there, you know, there were reports that more people would be listening listening to his speech more attentively than than to the the work report. Uh, that said, you know, I, I happen to know how those work work reports are composed. Uh, how they go through extensive party vetting. And whatever uh, Lee would have been saying, I'm sure he would have had a, a direct hand in, in saying it, but but that would have reflected, um, and certainly the comments that he was making about Hong Kong would have reflected uh, the, the, the broader will of the, the senior leaders, including that of, of Xi Jinping. Mm. And um, Professor Mahoney, uh, with Lee's passing, also gone is the last senior official from the Hu Jintao uh, era. Uh, and, and it's reported that this further diminishes the range of diverging voices within China's leadership. Do, do you have any particular thoughts on that issue? Uh, you know, I, I, have a, I have a different perspective. Um, one of the things that uh, we have to recall that, that uh, initially uh, Li Keqiang and Xi Jinping were, were political competitors. And, and there was this possibility that Li might take the number one spot, um, but, but instead it, it went to Xi. Um, and that they did manage to form, I think, a, a workable uh, partnership, especially during uh, Lee's second term. And, and in fact, that he survived into that second term surprised mm -hmm. a lot of people. Um, but I think the 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 the, the key point is that um, with uh, the rise of of Li Qiang uh, from uh, from Shanghai to to Beijing, that there's been some speculation that now she has a, a full slate of people that he fundamentally trusts and that he's more likely to listen to divergent ideas and not be concerned that there's some sort of uh, uh, political attempt to, to out-position him. In other words, that they're all members of the same team and that this actually opens the door for more open and candid discussions and policies. Now, whether or not that's true or whether or not uh, losing this, this older voice, um, my concern uh, is that, um, that uh, um, Li Keqiang, coming from the, the Communist Youth League and, and, and that being so powerfully representative of rural areas and, and uh, the working class uh, migrants and whatnot, um, that as China now moves to trying to stimulate its economy, it might uh, shift too much focus onto uh, urban areas and away from rural areas. I, I know that they haven't said that they're going to do that, but... Um, but they have economic incentives to do that in so much as there's this belief that one of the ways that we restart and, and really jumpstart the economy is by focusing on uh, those regions that, that have uh, the, the greater capacity for policies to work that way. Um, and I think, you know, if, if Lee or, or someone associated with, with YCL were still in charge, uh, maybe that might be uh, balanced a little better. But, but you know, that's just speculation. Okay, we've, <clears throat> we've only got a minute or so left, but no discussion of Li Keqiang's really complete without talking about his comment about the, how the yellow, neither the Yellow River nor the Yangtze River will ever flow backwards. Um, uh, do you think, um, um, uh, Professor Mahoney, do you think we read too much into that comment, or is it really significant? Uh, I think so. Uh, I, you know, um, I, one of the things that we that we've seen, and, and this is often the case in in China, um, you know, because there's there's this interesting cultural phenomenon. It's, it's true everywhere, but China has its own particular uh, cultural uh, aspect here. That whenever there's a death, uh, whether it's a family member or a high-ranking official, there's 
there's this um, you know emotional outpouring and and uh, and, and it, oftentimes emotion gets the better of reason um, um, uh, there's this there's been this tendency of course in in, in recent days to to romantically very romantically regard uh, Lee Chong and, and by all accounts he was a very fine person who served his country well and and did the best he could for a lot of people who were in vulnerable positions but uh, I think yeah. the, the the we should be uh, careful uh, okay, he was he was a politician <laughs> and a very skillful one um, that's good and, advice. Uh, thank we you. Uh, read too much. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. That's very good advice indeed, uh, Professor Mahoney. And uh, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Professor Joseph Gregory Mahoney uh, from East China Nor- Normal University in Shanghai joining us to discuss um, uh, Lika Chang. Uh, we're going to take a break for the news now. But after the news, we've got some guests in the studio. We're going to be talking about AI in the media uh, for um, weather forecasts, maybe one day hosting back chat. Let's see what our guests have to say. Uh, the, uh, for the moment, the weather forecast is read by a human. Uh, it is uh, mainly fine. It's going to be dry during the day. Maximum temperature will be around uh, 29 degrees, um, and the forecast is relatively good for the weekend. Uh, currently, it's uh, 25 degrees, and uh, the relative humidity is 75%. Stay with us. It's 9.30. Here's Haley Hitt with the news. President Biden has hailed the partial reopening of the Rafah crossing for foreign nationals trapped in Gaza. More than 400 people, including dozens of injured Palestinians, have been allowed to leave the besieged territory so far. British and American passport holders are among those who've entered Egypt. President Biden said the development was a result of intense diplomacy. The U.S. Federal Reserve has kept its key interest rate at its highest level for 22 years. It will remain between five and a quarter and five and a half percent. The bank has been attempting to stabilize price rises by raising the cost of borrowing. The annual rate of inflation in the U.S. is 3.7 percent, considerably higher than the Fed's target. And Donald Trump's eldest son is testifying in a civil fraud trial in New York. Donald Trump Jr. is an executive in the former president's business empire. He and his brother Eric are accused, along with their father, of fraudulently inflating the value of property owned by the Trump organization by billions of U.S. dollars. I'll have more news for you at 10 o'clock. People who are patriotic and have an affection for Hong Kong and who are capable and aspire to serve can make our community better. The 2023 District Council Ordinary Election is on December 10th. Remember to bring your identity card and vote for your preferred candidate. Let's build a nice and harmonious community together. Cast your vote at DC Election for a better community. The government requires employers to pay a wage of at least $4,870 a month to foreign domestic helpers for contracts signed on or after September 30th, 2023. An employer should not impose a lower wage or ask a helper to agree to a lower wage. Underpaying a helper is a serious offense. Making false representation on the wages of a helper can lead to prosecution and imprisonment. Welcome back to Back Chat. I'm Danny Gittings. Your guest presenter this morning is Rainbow Leung. In the second half of the show, we're going to move on to what everyone's been talking about all year, uh, the use of AI and more particularly the use of AI in the media. Now, just before the uh, news forecast, I was reading the weather, but if you were listening to RTHK Chinese channels, it would be Ada, the artificial intelligence anchor, um, certainly at certain times of the day, who would be presenting the weather. And Ada is not the only, uh, what should we call that, AI weather bot. I mean, uh, 
uh, numerous countries in the world, all the other cities, uh, they're now, whether it's now presented um, by um, AI, as the examples in Russia, Switzerland, in Taiwan, where apparently it's been a big hit, and indeed in many countries, actually now you're starting to see AI newsreaders. So to joining us to discuss how far this will go, uh, we have in the studio uh, Charles Chung, who's uh, General Manager of Global Media Consultancy Karma, and uh, Joss Bartles, who's uh, Assistant Professor in Organisational Communication at the Department of Communication Studies at Hong Kong Baptist University. Good morning. Welcome to Back Chat. Thank you for coming to the studio to join us. Who, who wants to go first, uh, Joss or, or Charles? Sure, I can go first. So good morning, Danny, and thanks for having me today. A bit of introduction about myself. I am from Karma, a global media intelligence company. We mainly work with PR and communication professionals on the media intelligence process. Well, for example, media monitoring, media analysis, and evaluation. We mainly help them manage reputation and to make better informed decisions. So that's your background, but to tell us, I mean, <laughs> what's your opinion on how, I mean, are you going to advise clients that um, they can better protect themselves by using AI instead? AI is more reliable, right? There's no danger of um, AI going off. Well, maybe there is. I mean, AI, in terms of written responses, AI can say all kinds of strange things. Which is, uh, which is lower risk, AI or humans? Well, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think AI is good at certain things that humans are not very good at. For example, something that is more routine or repetitive. Right. Um, to be very to honest, our weather forecast routine. Weather forecast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So humans are more prone to making mistakes. For example, and to be very honest, we don't like things that are boring sometimes. And uh, AIs are actually better at doing things like that. And humans get tired sometimes, which hum- uh, AIs don't. Uh, but at the same time, AIs are not very good at making critical thinking. You know, decisions that require critical thinking. For example. And that's where the humans step in. And when we help our clients on this kinds of analysis, we usually combine both AI and also humans. So how much are you using AI now in your, I mean, are you using AI in offering advice to clients? Yep, yep, we are. So for example, on a media monitoring part of AI, we use a lot of different techniques. Uh, NLP, for example, natural language processing. We use AI to understand the meaning behind um, a particular news article or social mention, for example. That's what we do. And uh, we also use human to understand the actual meaning behind a social mention. Because if you look at social media, for example, there is a lot of slang being used. And uh, there are always new slangs that come up in the social media. And it's even hard for humans like us to understand this kind of slangs. It will be very difficult for AI to learn. So like I mentioned before, we combine both AI and also humans to advise our clients on their communication strategy. And uh, Professor Bartel, um, where are you seeing AI being used in the media, specifically in Hong Kong? That's a good one. I mean, I always ask my students, do you think in general, does technology shape human being, human behavior or the other way around? So do we as human behavior shape technology? That that should be the first question because they're and then the second question is, uh, do you do you in general trust so media or or do you distrust media but also the same for do you trust human beings or do you don't trust i so if you answer the so if you say well ai is going to take over the media then you have a very negative then you have a perspective that um, technology is is the thing that shapes us and of course it's both through right so both we are shaped, our behavior is shaped by technology. But on the other hand, I'm like my father was, I'm an optimist, I'm an optimist. So I think that 
Um, when it comes to AI, we develop that, right? So we as human beings developed AI. So we have a say in what, if, if I ask my students, uh, I'm from the pre-mobile phone age. Um, and then I ask them, uh, when did you use your mobile phone for the last time to call somebody, to make a phone call? And then out of 40 students, like one or two do this, they, they raise their hands. Um, so actually, although a mobile phone, the idea says it is phone, we have the, our own motivations and our own needs to shape the way we use these media. And I think with artificial intelligence, it's, I'm, as again, I'm an optimist. I, I think um, when it comes to what you said about this repetitive behavior, perhaps, but what still what computers cannot do, I mean, we're very creative as human beings. We're intuitive. We have emotions. I don't see that part of AI developing over the next five to 10 years. And I have a question for you guys. Do you think that this interview will be with robots in five years? Well, you're the guest, so <laughs> you, you can't pass it back to us. Or that way. I don't, th I mean, I don't think so. Whether, uh, I don't AI think control. so, no. Is there going to be an AI host here uh, in, uh, in uh, mm. chat in five years no. or ten years? No, I don't think so. I think it's going to be difficult. I mean, I can see it for the weather forecast, because that data can go in and it's pre, you know what I mean, you can yeah. pre-program it. Yes. But if it's live, you know, there's a human, like in this session today, it's a human emotional connection. I'm responding to you. Um, that's going to be pretty difficult to I agree. have I agree. An, a bot to have to do that live. Exactly. So things like weather, for example, um, there's always a large amount of data. And that's what AI is particularly good at. It's more descriptive. Uh, but an AI anchor, for example, is not going to be good at investigative story. Right? They're not going to express a lot of complex emotions. So going, going back to that question, I think five years is probably not so possible. And uh, yeah, we're only talking about time here. So you say five years is not so possible. So maybe 10 years or yeah. if Backchat's still around. I, mean, that, um, I hope you guys are still there in five years. That would be cool. <laughs> no, no, I, I, we're saying five years that um, it's too soon for AI. But you're not, you're, Charles, you're not ruling it out happening further down the line, right? Well, honestly, let's, let's put it this way. Until today, AI is a lot better than humans in judgment and interpretation. We will still need human interpretation of facts, events or news stories. So I wouldn't rule the possibility, but five years is probably a bit too soon for AI to take over it's our step by step. Okay, so we talk about weather forecasts, and weather forecasts we can see, as you said, right? It's it's, it's fairly routine information, right? And perhaps that's why, um, RT, as we said, RTK have done it, and that um, so many uh, channels around the world are doing it. But it's already spread beyond that. I mean, I was just in preparation of the show, I was looking and reading that uh, the RTHK hasn't done this, but in a lot of countries, the newsreaders now are um, newsreaders, are AI bots as well. I mean, in, uh, in, in do we call them bots? But anyway. Um, the is AI in India, Indonesia, China launched one uh, five years ago. So um, we've gone from we've already gone from uh, weather forecasters to uh, newsreaders. Um, um, Professor Bartels, yeah. uh, your students should worry. I mean, <laughs> well, okay. When it comes to my students, I always tell my students, I teach you something now that in five years is irrelevant. So we actually educate them for jobs that don't exist yet. I mean, like, there's there's a lot of, for example, uh, when it comes to fake news and, and when it comes to, like, there's 20 years ago, there was no university that had a department of fact-checking. 
Now every university has a department of, when I was a student, I didn't know the word fact-checking. So what you see is we're very flexible, we're very creative as human beings. And what I tell, I, I do say to my students, well, um, I do educate you now, but I cannot promise you that what you learn here that in five years that you still need. So that's the, so is, 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 is AI changing how we use the media? Of, of course. But it's, I'm, I'm not too, I'm, I'm, as I said, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm, a, I'm an optimist. I believe in the positive things of human behavior. Nowadays, if you look at the news, of course, you can sometimes be more critical. But I, as long as, so artificial intelligence, is co it's called intelligence, right? And it's called artificial intelligence. So I agree that these computers, you cannot win uh, with chess anymore from computers. I mean, they're, they're better than that than we are. But there's so many behavior that we have on this earth that it's much more intuitive and emotional and automatic. And you see now with the development of these new cars, uh, with these self-driving cars, how long it takes to... And there's, there's even if there's something, like if there's a, if there's a dog on a zebra the car doesn't see it yet and it drives over the because it's it's it wasn't there before so it's because of this um unpredictability of ai assumes predictability and and yesterday i didn't even know that i would be in the studio here right so it's it's <laughs> it, it, and ai doesn't count for that so i again i do think these i, I do agree with perhaps even news readers, but news readers on television, do we want to see these? It depends. It depends. I mean, if, if, if you look in the Netherlands, um, people, the, the most watched television program still is the eight o'clock news in the Netherlands. And it's still um, how it's been like 20, 20, 30 years, somebody who actually tr is a real person talking to you about the news. I, I'm not worried about your jobs, by the way. Don't worry about that. No, really. I'm, I'm, as I said, I'm an optimist. And I actually want to add one more point there. Um, AI can be quite biased sometimes because oh. we train AI with data that humans give them. And they also get the bias we have as human beings. A very quick example here. Um, for example, if you use open arts to generate a picture, if you tell it to generate a picture of a powerful human, for example, it's very likely that it will give you a picture of a man instead of a woman. So AIs are also very biased in things like what you mentioned earlier, Professor. So I do agree with you on that point. And just picking up on that point, um, bias, I mean, there's been increasing amounts of fake news, misinformation, you know, manipulated media content and deep fakes, for example. So how do you think this can be um, uh, mitigated so that when AI is deployed, that content is balanced, accurate and trustworthy? I'm sorry, it's a very wide question. No, that's it. That's um, one thing I also always ask people, but also my students is, do you in generally trust people or do you in generally distrust people? So the, your view of the world depends on how you look at these developments, right? If you're, if you're a, an optimist, you think about it differently than when you're a critical person. And now coming back to this, um, I, to be honest, I don't think people are stupid. In general, people are pretty clever, pretty creative. And yes, these deepfakes, that, that is a... I think the bigger issue here is who's controlling it. So if a democracy is controlling it, 
it's different than when a company like Meta or Axis controlling it. So it's it's much more of what are the intentions of the people who are in power of these technologies. And I think that's a more um, relevant question in the discussion than if if people recognize deep fakes or not. Are they getting better? Yes, we see like, and it, could it be that then if you see President Joe Biden there and it's not President Joe Biden that people get fooled by that and could that have consequences? Yes, but I, in general, so far, uh, of course, there has been a lot of developments from nuclear power to this is one of these developments that definitely will have influence and will change the way we uh, use these news media. Uh, but as I said, there's also always a response, like all these fact check departments and which wasn't there. Is it that we can uh, that people are more critical about the regular news media? Yes. Um, sometimes when I ask, talk my, to my students, where do you get your news? They say, oh, on Facebook. And I think, no, please don't. You know, <laughs> uh, that is a tricky thing. But there's, again, you... We don't use TikTok in Hong Kong, but you look at surveys internationally, um, huge numbers of people now getting their news from TikTok. Yes, yes I know. Um, but there's also always counter, uh, counter movements that be critical about what you see and... Again, I'm, I'm, I'm an optimist or naive. That's also a possibility. We're discussing the role of um, AI in the media, and you just heard uh, Josh Bartels, who's assistant professor at uh, Department of Communication Studies associate. in Hong Kong. So, sorry, associate professor. Yes, My apologies for that. <laughs> <laughs> and congratulations. Yes, apologies. The the key, the key was wrong on that. Uh, associate professor at the Department of Communication Studies at Hong Kong Baptist University. Um, if you have any thoughts, uh, do email us at backchat at rthk.hk. You can go to our Facebook page, backchat on rthk radio free. Uh, email coming in from uh, listener Mike. Uh, Mike says, some countries listening to AI knowledgeable people like Elon Musk are very cautious in entering into any AI platforms. Yet Hong Kong seems bound and determined to drive headfirst into any and everything AI. Any, are there any fail-safe exit programs planned? I think not. Does anyone know the up and downside of AI controlling the media or would that even be possible? Just a couple of questions I would like to see. I would like to see answered. Interesting point, Mike. Um, I don't know, um, Charles, if you have any thoughts on that. Uh, we talk, used to talk about the big tycoons controlling the media, didn't we? Right? So in the yep. future, is it going to be a robot or oh, uh, automated instead? Exactly. So um, my view is that right, AI has its risks, and we have probably witnessed some examples in the in the past. Uh, remember, there was a case about a law professor in the U.S. being accused on a sexual harassment case. And uh, the ChatGPT basically made up a news article that did not exist. So these are the kind of risks that we get from AI. And as I've mentioned earlier, there are different ethical, ethical considerations when it comes to using AI. Uh, bias and fairness, for example, privacy. Um, so we also have to look at job displacement, by the way, mm. because AI is taking over quite a lot of jobs, especially jobs that require a lower skill set. We have to think about what are we going to do with the people with that jobs being replaced. So these are some considerations. So going back to that question, um, I think we shouldn't completely use just AI. There is always need to be a mix of human and also AI, and that's what we live in. And this is very true in a lot of different industries. 
including you guys, um, we mentioned earlier, the weather anchors can probably be replaced by AI, but not something that is more complex. At the moment. Yeah, at the moment, yeah. Yeah. Right. And Professor Bart, uh, um, Bartels, any, anything you want to add to that? Uh, to the ethical part of yeah. AI? Um, it, again, it comes down to you have people who, who want to do bad in the world and people who want to do positive things in the world, right? Mm -hmm. And that, that's, uh, that's, that's happening always. Uh, again, do I think AI is something that has an impact on how we do, how we organize news media? Definitely. Could, could that have? But l I'm going to go to a very concrete example. Uh, we had a discussion on chat GDP, right? And of course, also in all universities in Hong Kong, we talk about chat GDP. Then I think, okay, let's not. And then they say, well, yeah, students can now write a paper on chat GDP. And then I think, yeah, but we can also, instead of giving them questions, giving them the answer and then let them use GTP to get the right question, then still your academic thinking, um, then, then you can use the program for good. So I'm, again, I'm not, I, yes, it has, uh, you see uh, negative effects of, of uh, artificial intelligence, definitely. It, it's what we make of it, to be honest. Mm. Uh, and Charles, you mentioned job displacement, um, yeah. that AI will replace um, certain jobs uh, in the future, including in media. Yep. Um, but surely they will create jobs in other areas. And you mentioned, that, um, yep. Professor, the, the back office, fact-checking back office that never existed 10 years ago. Uh, you know, what, what are your thoughts on that, um, uh, Charles? Yeah, I, I completely agree. So AI can help us with tasks such as data collection, uh, verification, for example, things that are more repetitive, right? So, um, but at the same time, I think we need to learn how to communicate better with AI. So this create new jobs, right? In the future, we'll probably need someone who can interpret a, uh, a message into a prompt to an AI, for example. How do I talk to AI better? How do I refine the, the question better, for example? And what I'm seeing is that people are getting better and better at spotting whether or not a content is written by AI these days. I'm sure we have all used ChatGPT. If you ask ChatGPT to do a write-up, it will follow a very similar format. Introduction, content, a very odd summary that basically repeats everything. So people are getting a lot better these days in terms of spotting whether or not a content is created by just AI. So we we'll need jobs like take, that. In take the your point. I mean, that's and for those who are in academia, right? That's great because we it's very easy to spot when the student has cheated by using ChatGPT because <laughs> the answer follows the same, a certain um, format. But if we're getting better at um, at spotting what's written by ChatGPT and generative AI, and maybe generative AI is smarter than us, but surely it's going to get better at involving its style, so that um, in a few years it won't be so obvious. I mean, it will it will learn to use different styles. Surely, maybe, maybe I, I think that'll be the case. But there are still things that AI is not very good at. Uh, we spoke about that case with a law professor in the US before. It basically just make up false information. And this information is a very, very serious issue when it comes to media. So for example, we help our client with uh, media analysis sometimes. And that is a task that AI cannot do. We can't simply rely on AI. We need human analysts to look into the news articles. What is the underlying message there? Uh, what would be the sentiment of that particular article or social media mention? Uh, we cannot rely on just AI. 
So, for example, uh, I mentioned um, slangs in social media, right? And um, the way AI detects the sentiment of a particular word is based on, based on its understanding of that word. For example, the word sick is that was a negative word. So AI would think that, okay, everything that contains the word sick is negative. Now, if you look at a different context, say if a company launched a new product and someone leaves a Facebook message and it says, hey, this new product is really sick. And that changed the entire meaning of that sentence. AI might not understand the meaning right away. It would tell you, hey, you know what? This comment is negative because someone is sick, which is not a good thing. But in fact, that person is talking about how cool the new product is. And let me bring another comment from a listener that's actually maybe fairly similar to what, what I guess I've been saying. Uh, Ilna on um, our Facebook page is saying, even in Hong Kong where face-to-face interaction is common, it's apparent there's often a lack of human touch. Introducing AI news presenters further exacerbates this issue. AI presenters may efficiently deliver information, but they lack the innate charisma, emotional connection and genuine human presence that live news anchors offer. Personally, I prefer watching real live news anchors on TV. For instance, the decision by View TV 6 to remove live news presenters was not a good idea. Having someone simply read the news without being seen, likely with pre-recorded segments, diminishes the authenticity and engagement that um, live presenters bring. The human element in news presentation is crucial for establishing trust and connection with the audience. Uh, Ilna, thank you very much indeed. And um, um, Professor Bartles, I mean, that really echoes (laughs) your hopeful message. You have very intelligent listeners. That's the, (laughs) seriously, that, that, yeah. This this proves my point that I mean people are not stupid. They realize when something's going on most of the time. But then again, I come and maybe charge you on this. I of mean, uh, our generation, we, we 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 like this. But I mean, think about uh, newspaper uh, printed newspapers. People of a certain generation like printed newspapers, but the younger generation uh, never bother with printed newspapers. Um, I mean, um, new generations evolve, and we, while well, we got you, we uh, used to have seeing. Uh, I much prefer to see people. Uh, real people reading the news is it quite possible that the next generation will feel different uh well in my opinion i think print media is still very relevant these days let me give you an example you don't really see a lot of fake news on newspaper right but you see a lot more fake news in social media that's because traditional media newspaper or magazine they follow a more complicated or advanced process when it comes to verification for example and that's why it still holds its value of course people will argue that if you look at the number of print media outlets in, in Hong Kong or globally, it's obviously declining, but I think it will still have a significance in the foreseeable future. And it's definitely going to be more than five years. <laughs> uh, Professor um, Barthels? I agree, but it's it's too easy to say that it's a, I mean, we had the, disc- there's a discussion on Gen Z and it's, it's I think if, if you're 17 years old and you're, um, you're interested in a topic, then you're a different person than when you're 17 years old and you're not interested in the topic, right? That's the same for somebody who's 60 years old and interested in the topic and somebody. So it's much more about elaboration of how much do you want to know about the topic rather than age or generation discussions. I, to be honest, I'm you gonna, don't think I'm, there's such a generational divide. Then. No, I yeah. don't think so. Of course, 
we're I mean we're from an age that I'm, I'm, we're from an I'm, I'm, fair assumption. Yeah. I'm, I'm pre-mobile, right? So my, I had my first mobile phone in 1996, yeah, and I, I show I'm my I still have that. I show my students in my social media at work course. This look, this was this was, this was by it. yes, we were. Rick. No, no, a small one. Oh, that's it was in the, in the Europe. It was Siemens then. Oh, in the okay. Siemens, in the, the, you had a Nokia, Ericsson, and Siemens uh, anyway, at the okay, beginning. So yes. Yeah, that time. Um, so yes, we are different in the way that they grow up now with only online. But I, it, it's it's too simple to just say it's because the older generation likes to likes to uh, have print media more than that the younger want to do that. It's it's much more about preferences and elaborations of these younger kids versus older kid, older people. So it's, yes, there is a difference in generations. Um, history has evolved over the, I mean, when it comes, when we were young, it was different than when kids are young now. I don't think that, but that's not the, to be honest, not the main issue here when it comes to Let's put it on the practical side. You're in the um, you're in the Department of Communication Studies at yes. Long Baptist University, which means uh, a lot of your students are people who want to become journalists, right? I mean, I know you're training other no, people as well. Well, most of them, well, half of them want to be rich. They said when I asked them, <laughs> "What do you want to be when you grow Those up?" Those are the say, ones who don't want to be journalists, right? <laughs> and some of them want to improve the world. Some of some of them want to be improve themselves. Some of them want to be journalists. A lot of them want to be working at a PR company or a, a marketing company. So it's it's a very broad well, my range. My point of, is whether they want to become journalists or indeed work at a PR company. Do they worry that uh, they they still come and study? Right? They're not worried that there'll be no jobs for them in ten no, years time. No, no, they're not worried. These kids, eighteen, nineteen years old, most of them have they have no clue yet what they want to be when they grow up. And I like that because then they don't have to worry about adults uh, problems like we have so it's it's they learn and they become an academic and then they choose whatever they i always tell them please try to do something funny rather than just make a lot of money but they they still choose communication studies and journalism uh, uh a lot, not just at HKBU, but also at the other universities in Hong Kong. Because you look at some of these predictions, sort of 50, 60% of jobs are going to go because of AI. Where are, they going to, are you saying these predictions are wrong? Or to- yes. The, the, well, the, the, these jobs are going to go, they, they're going to go, but there's going to be other jobs that are not there yet for them. Like there are jobs now that weren't there like 20 years ago. Charles, I can only give you about 30 seconds, but oh, sorry. Uh, the jobs give yep, us a bit. Yep. Um, I actually agree. Uh, I think it, 50% is 50% is probably not so true. There will be people taking over jobs that did not exist before. Someone who can talk to the AI, like I mentioned earlier. And um, for example, someone who translate a message into a prompt. I believe I mentioned that earlier, but that's my view. I do agree. Okay. Well, that's interesting discussion, isn't it? Um, very interesting discussion and we have to draw it to a close there um, but thank you very much to our guests uh, Charles Chung who's the general manager of global media consultancy Karma uh, and also um, Joss Bartles who is associate professor in organizational communication um, at the Department of Communication Studies and uh, Hong Kong Baptist University thank you very much uh, to my uh, co-host Rainbow uh, Janice and um, Philip will be uh, here tomorrow for back chat so join us again then